On April the 28th, 1998, Arlene Fraser's day started like any other. Arlene, who was a mother of two, a loving sister and friend to many, spent the morning waking her children and then getting them ready for school. The house in which Arlene used to live is at 2 Smith Street in New Elgin, in the heart of Murray, which lies between Aberdeen and Inverness in Scotland, if you don't know the area. Early that morning, one of Arlene's next-door neighbours witnessed Arlene taking washing from the back garden into the house, while her children, Jamie and Natalie, sat watching cartoons and eating cereal inside the house before school. In their morning routine, the kids had plenty of time to relax because their school, New Elgin Primary School, was a mere stone's throw away. Arlene was happy for them to walk to school themselves. And so that morning, she saw them off at the front door, giving them a hug and a kiss before they went on their way. With a house to herself, Arlene spent the next hour cleaning, ironing and hoovering. And then, a sudden thought occurred to her. She remembered Jamie was heading to Inverness on a field trip that day. But she had no idea what the plan was for Jamie getting home that afternoon. Seeking clarity, Arlene phones the school and explains the issue to the receptionist, who reassures Arlene that she would check with a colleague and call her right back. Arlene hangs up the phone. Ten minutes later, the receptionist calls back. But there is no answer. Forty minutes after that unanswered phone call, a friend of Arlene, a woman named Michelle Scott, drops by. But Arlene is not home. Arlene is never seen again. I've become fixated on this case the events of that morning, and in particular, the 50 minutes between Arlene calling the receptionist and her friend visiting the house. What's mystifying is that all this happened on a very intimate street. Several neighbours were elderly and always kept an eye on comings and goings. And given that the police had also been called to Arlene's house at least twice, in the preceding weeks, you can imagine the locals' radar would have picked up anything that was out of the ordinary. One of the neighbours was also a retired police officer. So why, given all of those elements, did nobody hear or see a disturbance or something out of place? Why did nobody see Arlene? Just what happened? that fateful morning. I'm Dale Haslam. I'm an investigative journalist at the Press and Journal. And in this podcast, I'm going to examine that crucial 50-minute period which sparked Scotland's largest ever missing persons case. I'm also going to look at how Arlene's disappearance was the culmination of years of abuse at the hands of her husband. In this investigation, I'll speak with those who knew Arlene best and to those who finally helped bring Arlene's killer to justice. 
We've decided to create this podcast, as this year marks the 25th anniversary of Arlene's disappearance. We're also keen for a new audience to hear her story, especially now when coercive control and gaslighting have become more understood and recognisable. And when you hear Arlene's story, you will realise that this is what was happening to her before the physical abuse started and ultimately before she was murdered. This case also spanned the 1990s and the 2000s, meaning many articles, especially those written when Arlene first vanished, are unavailable online, only existing in newspaper archives. This means some people may not even recognise Arlene's name, and those who do may not know the full chain of events that unfolded, which is wrong, given that Arlene's family still yearns for answers over the whereabouts of her body. And of course, the first thing we did before setting out on this investigative journey was to check that Arlene's loved ones were content for us to do this project. They were, and we are grateful for that. So, I'm endeavouring to shine a new light on this case, in this podcast, so Arlene is never forgotten, and in the hope that maybe, just maybe, someone will offer information that leads to the discovery of her body. You're listening to Vanished, the Arlene Fraser murder, a true crime podcast from the Press and Journal and Impact Podcasts. Episode 1, Arlene. The journey to Two Smith Street in Elgin is a bit of a trek from my own home in Aberdeen. Some people might think Aberdeen is pretty far north, but to reach Elgin, you have to go further north still. Up and along the A96 road, through the likes of Inverurie and Huntley, before you reach Murray and the town of Elgin. I say town, but technically you could call it a city, as the local football team is called Elgin City. Elgin also has its own cathedral, which was established in 1224, dedicated to the Holy Trinity. But it now lies a historic ruin. So, I've come in the car to Elgin today to find out more about the events leading up to Arlene's disappearance on April the 28th, 1998. Before I head to Smith Street in New Elgin, which is on the southern outskirts of Elgin and not far from the railway station, I'm going to chat to two of Arlene's closest friends. You see, Arlene Fraser's extended family lived in the central belt back then. So the two people who saw her most days were pals Marion Taylor and Michelle Scott. They should know a lot more about Arlene's movements and life in the run-up to her disappearance. Both Marion and Michelle were close friends with Arlene and they helped detectives with a missing person investigation. For Michelle Scott, Arlene's disappearance is a very sensitive topic as Michelle was a key witness in relation to that crucial 50-minute window. I asked Michelle if she would spare a few moments to talk to me about what happened back then, and she invited me to her work in Elgin Town Centre. On Michelle's lunch break, we sat down on two sofas in a quiet corner and began chatting. She's a woman in her 50s and looks a little nervous as I take out my notebook and dictaphone. So, how? I mean, how do you feel about the anniversary coming up? You just think... 25 years, 
you'd have thought something would have been found out, you know, what had happened to her and everything. I mean, you would like to think that she's somewhere else and enjoying her life, but you know that's not true. Michelle Scott and Arlene were close pals as teenagers, but grew apart when Arlene became a mum, as Arlene put her young children above everything else, understandably so. But as the kids got older, Arlene and Michelle rekindled their strong bond, and they were close friends again in the years before Arlene went missing. She was also around when Arlene met and fell in love with Nat Fraser in 1985. At the time, Arlene, then Arlene McInnes, was just like many other 20-year-olds. She left school with few qualifications and was trying to find her path in life, moving from one part-time job to another, and she had recently started working in a fashion shop. When it came to romance, it was well before the days of swiping right, so most young people struck up their fledgling romances at the local bar or at house parties, and that's just how it was with Arlene and Nat. At one party, Arlene looked across the room and saw Nat. He was seven years older than Arlene. He was a striking guy with long, dark hair. When you first meet him, you would think, oh, he's a nice guy, chatty, you know, friendly and yeah. everything. Nat Fraser was well-known around Elgin. He ran his own fruit and veg delivery service, so often saw dozens of traders while out dropping off orders around the town. He was also the lead singer in his band, The Minesweepers. Locals would often see him on stage at weekends, entertaining the crowds in bars or at hotels. Almost everyone knew Nat. Safe to say, Arlene and Nat were attracted to each other. Throughout the night of the party, they exchanged innocent banter and smiles. Arlene thought Nat was dashing and funny. The fact he had his own business impressed Arlene. It signified financial security and sensible planning for the future. Nat saw an attractive young woman. He liked how Arlene had a quiet confidence to her. While they got on well that night, their relationship didn't really get going until Hogmanay, as 1985 gave way to 1986. At another house party in Elgin, the two met up again and spent the night dancing to the big hits of the day. If you're of a certain age, you'll know the songs I mean. The likes of Simple Minds Don't You Forget About Me, Aha's Take On Me, and then, as many Hogmanay parties end, Oglanzine. That Hogmanay party was when the pair really hit it off. In the weeks that followed, Nat played the Casanova role, showering Arlene with gifts and making a public show of his intentions towards her. Arlene was flattered, but those around her warned her to be careful of Nat's reputation. People had told her that Nat had a different woman in every town as his band performed in the pubs and clubs of Murray and Aberdeenshire. Arlene went to see Nat's band play herself and saw he was behaving. Arlene trusted her own instinct and trusted Nat enough to take the next step. She moved in with him at Nat's bungalow at 2 Smith Street in New Elgin. The move happened three months after the couple got together, and to outsiders that might seem sudden. But it's important to note what was happening in Arlene's life at the time. She had been sharing a bedroom with her older sister Carol, and so Nat's house offered her the dream of her own space and her own home. And living with Nat meant financial security for Arlene, who had few qualifications herself. 
That summer was great for Arlene. She continued her job at the Time Machine clothing boutique in Elgin and enjoyed shopping, keeping fit and experimenting with hair and makeup. Then, that autumn, her life changed forever. Nat picked his moment, got down on one knee and slipped a sapphire engagement ring on Arlene's finger as she agreed to marry him. At South Church in Elgin, Arlene and Nat were married in May 1987. It's a small, intimate church at the south end of the town. But this wasn't just your regular wedding where everything runs to plan. With Nat, it could never be. In fact, many people I've spoken with tell me that everything about that ceremony was typical of his character, or as they put it, pure Nat. Nat showed up for his wedding day sporting a black eye, or a kika as it's known in the northeast of Scotland. It was the reward for getting in to a fight during his stag do that had ended just a few hours before he was due to walk down the aisle. He was also hungover. But, as dishevelled as Nat was, he still swept Arlene off her feet and she was still taken in by his bravado. Nat was only too willing to throw money around when he knew people were watching and he could show it off. And that was what happened on his wedding day. Nat sent a top-of-the-range white Rolls Royce to bring Arlene to the church and gave her a gold and silver wedding band encrusted with diamonds as they exchanged vows. And rather than hiring a band, Nat made the reception all about him, taking to the stage with his band, the Minesweepers. Nat even serenaded Arlene with his own rendition of Eric Clapton's Wonderful Tonight. To his public, Nat was portraying the archetypal old romantic, the perfect husband, if you like, honouring his new wife. But in reality, it was all about Nat. He wanted the world to think that he was a stand-up guy. Nothing else mattered to Nat except his reputation, even if he was hiding shameful, dark secrets. The wedding wasn't the only big news in Arlene's life back in 1987. She was also pregnant with her first child, Jamie. So, Arlene gave up her job and Nat would become the sole breadwinner, out and about in his fruit and veg van. While this arrangement all seemed well on the surface, it gave Nat the time and excuse to be his true self, a liar and a cheat. Hello. Hi, Marion. It's Dale at the Preston Journal. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Good, good. Glad to hear it. Uh, thanks again for putting the time aside today. I really While I was in Elgin, I visited Marion Taylor, another close friend of Arlene. We agreed to set up a phone chat a few days later. Marion was close friends with Michelle Scott, and it was Michelle who introduced Marion to Arlene in 1997. At this point in time, Arlene had been married to Nat for 10 years and the birth of Jamie was followed by the arrival of a daughter called Natalie. But in those 10 years, the marriage had deteriorated, as Marion would start to discover. Marion's first impressions of Arlene was that she was wonderfully wide-eyed about everything and everyone. She came in, she was 
super friendly, really, and absolutely delighted to be out with the girls for a change. Yeah. Um, and the first thing that took her eye, she, 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 you know, she went into Michelle's flat and she went, oh, I love this, I love how you <laughs> fitted it out and stuff like that. And this was such a huge deal to her as yeah. a human being that she never, ever got anything new from that. Nothing was new. For Michelle to have a flat the way she had it then, which was like pink fluffy carpet <laughs> the matching sofas and stuff like that, she just she just loved it and she she said I, I've never seen anything like this. She goes, I never get to go and pick new furniture at a store, or yeah. I never get to, you know, pick anything new. This was the first clue for Marion and Michelle that Arlene may be a prisoner in her own home. For many. A night out at weekends can involve a drink or two, perhaps one drink too many. But for Arlene, she had a medical condition that meant even two glasses of wine would make her incredibly ill. So she usually just sipped one glass for several hours. But what made those nights worthwhile for Arlene was the break from her routine of being a mum all week. And Michelle and Marion didn't mind that Arlene was a slow drinker. Far from it. Looking back on those times now, Marion says that because Arlene's free time was so limited, she considered Arlene hanging out with her and Michelle to be a huge gift. Everything centred around her two kids, totally, everything, yeah. you know. Um, really nice, and I, I, I was always amazed. And it was almost like a huge gift that she gave us. She just wanted her company. It wasn't, wasn't alcohol, yeah. you know. She just wanted to talk and speak and get to know everybody. Arlene, Michelle and Marion became a tight trio. They would go out or stay in at Michelle's flat. We'd be there till maybe 11 o'clock at night yeah. before we'd even get out. Yeah. Because we'd be sitting nattering and chatting. And <laughs> so I'd be chatting to Arlene. Um, Michelle would go and get ready because then she'd know if we were both waiting. <laughs> so there were no colour classes um, or anything like that? Yeah. At the time, Marion worked as a driving instructor in Fockerbez, but she was training to become a counsellor. Marion's listening skills meant that, from the moment she met Arlene, she was the perfect person to listen to Arlene's troubles. And the two of them would chat for hours, putting the world to rights. I know Michelle was quite shocked about how close we really got. We yeah. really did get close. She was a lovely girl. Arlene would tell Marion and Michelle about her hopes of going back to college to get an education. She had enrolled in two business studies courses in 1997. Arlene had been a housewife for 10 years, and now that the kids were at school, Arlene wanted the time to gain qualifications. Arlene was spending time with her close friend, Michelle Scott, and saw that Michelle had her own trade and lots of independence. Michelle could tell that Arlene wanted to take a leaf out of her book. I think she was happy enough being a stay-at-home mum and everything. It wasn't until the kids started going to school and that, and I think she realised, you know, I, I want to go to college, I want to get... And then they were going through sort of a bad patch and everything, and she was starting to go out and that. And... I think she was enjoying just getting out because, I mean, she only got out every odd Saturday night. It wasn't every single weekend. Yeah, yeah. Because he was out playing in the band. If she could get a babysitter, then yeah. 
she would come out for a Saturday night. As the three spent more and more time together, Arlene opened up about what the last 10 years had really been like. She revealed that Nat was a serial adulterer whose cheating had become so flagrant he didn't even bother to hide it from Arlene. Here is Marion again. But she did say that, you know, he always had affairs, always. Yeah. And she knew, she would know. Um, and she said, you know, that there's no, there's no tracking it to one person. It's just people. Yeah. She goes, and he, he, he was bold enough, you know, to, to even speak on the phone, and she knew, yeah. you know, that he was speaking to somebody. While Arlene stayed at home with the kids, Nat was out running his business and playing in the band, which gave him plenty of opportunity to cheat. Michelle heard it was a different woman every week. I mean, he was in the band, so he was out every weekend, Friday, Saturday. And I remember Arlene saying that sometimes he never used to come home till all hours in the morning. She did start confiding everything to me, you know, eh, because she really wasn't happy. She was really controlled. And um, she said, see, he wasn't a, a dad to the, to the children either. And she actually said to me that in one occasion, um, the wee lad, and it was some martial arts, I don't know if it was taekwondo or karate or something like that. And uh, she actually phoned me and she says, Marion, I'm going to have to burst his piggy bank. She goes, so he can pay his fee to get in for tonight. And I says, well, ask not. Just ask him. Yeah. And she goes, he's not, he won't, he won't do it. He won't do it. He won't give him nothing. She goes, he's not interested. In, and she says, that's just typical Nat. Here we see another contradiction in Nat. When out in public, Nat convinced people he was a charming family man. He had his children's names on the side of his work van. This was the image Nat presented to the world, to Elgin. But once he got back home, he was anything but the warm, generous husband behind closed doors. She said if he wasn't working, he would be out with his band. And if he wasn't out with his band, sometimes he didn't even see, but he was out. There were arguments which became violent. During my research, I found out about one particular nasty incident that took place at the family home at Two Smith Streets in New Elgin. It was in 1992, so seven years after Arlene and Nat got married, and six years before she went missing. There was an argument, shouting, and then Nat hit Arlene several times. She was scared, livid, heartbroken. The assault took such a toll on Arlene's well-being that she moved into a woman's shelter for five weeks taking her son Jamie with her. And it's at this point in the story that it's worth talking about social attitudes at the time. Nowadays, we all know terms like gaslighting and coercion, but back in the 1990s, those concepts just didn't exist, not as we know them now. And so domestic abuse victims often felt isolated, like they couldn't open up to loved ones out of fear that people think that they with a problem. It's sad to say, but many people would blame the victim. This was such a concern for Arlene that she didn't tell a soul about moving into the refuge. Not even her family, who only found out about it years later. 
Dolwali moved back in and gave Nat another chance. Things only got worse. As part of this investigation, I've looked at police arrest reports and court reports detailing Nat's violence towards Arlene. And it was not a nice read. I showed Marion what I'd found. It was almost like this steady build-up from sort of 1990 onwards where... You know, they'd got into arguments and it started off with, you know, loud voices and bad, you know, uh, cross words. And then it the first incident was not pushing Arlene. Um, and then, you know, it, it kind of, every incident was more serious. And yeah. obviously, like you yeah. say, it ended up, um, I think he punched her in the stomach one night. He'd then, you know, make it up. He'd buy her a gold eternity ring and that kind of thing. He'd always charm her back. Yeah, it was, it listening to her speaking and the, each time I spoke to her there was something that devastated me whatever she said you know it was like devastating to me and I'm thinking she's carrying on as if it's just normal you know she's not making a point of saying wait a minute we need to talk about this she's not she never really picked them up for it she just accepted what you gave her buoyed by the advice and support from Michelle and Marion Arlene did build up the courage to give Nat an ultimatum. Arlene told Nat that he had to let her go to college part-time and give her more freedom. Or she would walk out on him forever, taking the kids with her. Nat reluctantly agreed. But as the weeks went on, Nat started to notice Arlene spending time studying and socialising. He didn't like what he saw. A changing power dynamic. Say to her, you know, you really don't have to put up with this. You shouldn't have to put up with this. You know, if, if there's no talking to him or if he's not listening. And she says, Oh, but she says, Me coming out with you has got his attention. Yeah. She doesn't like, he doesn't like the fact that we're coming out. It was a dark period of time for Arlene. She had to simultaneously cope with Nat cheating and also deal with him hitting her whenever he lost his temper. And remember, this was six years after Arlene had spent time at the woman's refuge. She had been putting up with Nat's abuse all that time, suffering in silence. It got to the stage where I said to Michelle, you know, I don't think Arlene coming out with us is going to do her any good. You mean because it's because... sort of short-term uh, chance to socialise, but long-term resentment from Nat making her life hard? Well, it wasn't just that. By the, by the amount of things that she told me, what was you know wrong in her eyes, and how he dealt with her when she went home at night time. Yeah. I knew this. I said, this is not going to end good. He's going to really hurt her. And um, I, I said, and Michelle says, how do you think like that? And I says, I, I just know by speaking to him, yeah. he's going to hurt her. By 1998. Nat's crusade to control Arlene had become intense. His violent outbursts towards Arlene were escalating. One night in 1998, Arlene was out with her friends in the Newmarket pub in Elgin. Marion was there. When she was out, she would speak to people and really greet them and, you know, and she was an attractive-looking girl. Yeah. And folk would come over and say, oh, are you single? Yeah, yeah. And she'd say, no, I'm, I'm married. And Nat happened to walk in and somebody was actually speaking to her. Mm. Now, 
he, he didn't stay for long, but he knew the whole gist of the conversation. When she went home, he asked about every point and he said, you were chatting somebody up. And she goes, no, I wasn't chatting anybody up. Yeah. But she says, he did ask for my number, I'm not going to lie. But before she had come back with, I'm not like you. She goes, yeah. I'm, I'm not like you, I wouldn't go seeing somebody else. Yeah. That night, Nat reacted with fury. He punched Arlene so hard, he fractured her jaw. Arlene's facial injuries were so bad that she was unable to chew food without feeling excruciating pain. It became easier for Arlene to skip eating. And within a very short space of time, she had lost two stone in weight. She would gloss over those physical things, but I asked because I, you know, I wondered if like there were any physical signs, like for example, if she was eating less or she had any facial marks, and you know that that sort of stuck out to you at the time, and you thought, oh god. Well, she she would show you bruising. Yeah. She would show you. Nat briefly moved out of the family home at Two Smith Street, but ended up moving back in after talking Arlene round. But the peace was short-lived. Marion's earlier haunting prediction was correct. The situation was coming to a head. One night, Marion, Arlene and Michelle had gone out on a Saturday and it was the day before Mothering Sunday, 1998. They were joined by Michelle's boyfriend and his friend who had parked his car outside Michelle's house. So we're, we're sitting in there, we're talking and chatting, and Michelle's getting ready, and we're having drinks, and the boys were talking away. Then we went out, and it was a normal night. They came back, and then we started chatting again. And, of course, the music gone, and, oh, we started playing, like, charades and stuff like that. Before I knew what time it was, it was five o'clock before we all got home. Yeah. Anyway, we got home, and the next day, I get a phone call. It was Arlene. And she says, Nat got me with the dressing gown belt at the mirror when she was in the bathroom. And he strangled her. And she says, at one point, she didn't think she was going to make it because she passed out. And she goes, I, 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 I'm going to have to go to the doctor, she says. Nat had attacked Arlene after having Arlene followed. One of Nat's pals spotted a car outside Michelle Scott's flat and reported back to him. There was, of course, a rational explanation in that the car belonged to a friend of Michelle's boyfriend, but Nat wasn't interested in logic. Instead, Nat wrongly assumed that the car belonged to someone Arlene was seeing, a sign of his rampant insecurity and skewed judgment. Nat's constant monitoring of Arlene had become a routine part of her life. They told me that often, Arlene would be sat at a friend's house and people would hear a car engine ticking over outside and Arlene would instantly recognise it as Nat's car. But on this particular night, the night of the assault with the dressing gown cord, Nat panicked. In his mind, he was losing control of this cookie-cutter family life he tried to project to the community. All this at a time when he felt his total domination over Arlene's life was fading. The kids were growing up and needed Arlene less, and so she had more time for college and socialising. And Nat deeply resented 
Arlene's longing for independence. Marion was extremely worried about Arlene. And then Michelle found out what had happened to her horror. I went round to see her that night. She goes, I was kind of gasping for breath and and then she passed out and he yeah. her from the the bathroom to the living room to the living yeah. room and told her that she'd had a fit and everything. I've seen photos of Arlene after this attack. It's one of the most shocking photos I've ever seen. It's a haunting picture. Arlene is looking into the camera, her head tilted up. She looks pale and her face is swollen. The whites of her right eye completely turned red and you can see the throttle marks on her neck. She was examined by a trained pathologist who usually examines corpses. The pathologist said Arlene's injuries were like those of someone who had been strangled to death. At the local hospital, doctors concluded Arlene's injuries were so severe that they only had one option open to them, to go to the police. Arlene was persuaded to give a statement to the police and officers arrested Nat on suspicion of attempted murder. He was bailed and an interdict, the Scottish equivalent of an injunction, banned him from going near their house in Smith Street. Arlene also visited a divorce lawyer. As part of any divorce, Arlene was entitled to half of the couple's estate, around £250,000, if she would make it through the divorce. But we had been here several times before, with Arlene threatening to leave and being taught round by Nat. To some outsiders, it might all sound obvious. Why didn't Arlene just get the hell out of there? But it is never that simple, as any victim of abuse will tell you. She had to think of the kids, where she and the two of them would live. Moving out of Elgin would mean having to find them a new school. Staying in Elgin would mean remaining in easy reach of Nat. And if she did manage to escape his clutches, where would she get the money from to survive? All things considered, going through with the divorce and finally leaving Nat would take a great deal of courage from Arlene. The only ones who knew if Arlene meant business this time were her closest friends. So I asked Michelle. Do you believe that she would have gone through with the divorce? I think she would have, yeah. Because I remember her saying to me, she goes, well, she wasn't happy. She wasn't happy at all. And she says, I'd be happy just with some money. I don't think she wanted to stay in, if I remember right, I don't think she wanted to stay in that house because it was too secluded yeah. and everything. She just wanted money, enough money to buy yeah. a little house somewhere. Yeah. If I remember right, she never stopped him seeing the kids. You know, he could come around the house and pick up the kids and mm. take them out and everything. As Nat waited for the criminal investigation to conclude, Arlene was living alone with the children. Arlene had slowly been trying to regain her independence by starting college. Now with Nat banned from the house and divorce on the way, she had a golden opportunity to finally be free of Nat's controlling grip on her and have a life of her own. Went to college, she actually changed as well. She found a bit of herself. She found, you know, by seeing Michelle's house and stuff like that, yeah. you know, 
what really life could be like if she had responsibility for her own life. You know, she started to see the independence that she'd given away. Our journey takes us back to the house at Two Smith Street in New Elgin. Having heard from Arlene's friends, we can fully understand the chain of events leading up to April 28, 1998. Betrayal, violence and fear. But it's this family home at Two Smith Street that is the focal point of the darkest mystery. What happened to Arlene that day? It's important to consider Arlene's weekly schedule back then. Practically every hour of the week was spoken for, except for Tuesdays. On Tuesdays, she would see the kids off to school and at some point meet Michelle Scott for lunch at local cafes or at one of their homes. We'd arrange to, we normally go for our lunch that day, but I had a hospital appointment, so I was off my work. And I'd, I'd said to her, I don't know what time it'll finish, how long I'll be in the hospital. But I'd nipped round to, after I'd come out of the hospital just to say, that's me finished and we can go for our lunch earlier. But there was nobody in. So oh, I only lived two it. minutes from her. Yeah, yeah just round, around the, round corner, the corner, yeah. So I just pulled in past in the car when I came back from the, the hospital and there was nobody there. So I'd left and then came back again. This time, rather than just knocking on the front door, Michelle opened it and walked in. The unlocked door was unusual in itself as many years earlier, there had been a burglary at the property and something sinister had happened there just days earlier, which we will hear more about later. So Arlene always kept the doors locked, especially when she was home alone. Arlene also never left electrical appliances plugged in. But on this occasion, a vacuum cleaner was out. The Hoover was lying out in the hallway. The door was open, which I didn't, because she, she kept her door locked most of the time. I mean, the house is secluded and yeah. everything. So she wasn't, because a couple of times I'd been rang before, the door was locked. She'd been burgled before, hasn't yeah, she? It made, a, yeah. it made a security conscious. That's right. I thought yeah, well, she's yeah. just nipped out and just left stuff. You know, she was in the middle of Hoovering or something. But, I mean, let's say she... Things got stranger as the day progressed. Michelle knew something was amiss, but couldn't quite put her finger on it. Why would Arlene agree at 9.30am to meet Michelle at 10.30am and then not be home at 10.30am? It didn't make sense. Michelle did consider it was possible that Arlene had gone all the way to Inverness in the afternoon to pick Jamie up from the school trip. But she had no car and there wouldn't have been enough time because Arlene had an appointment with a divorce lawyer in Elgin at 2.30pm. Arlene did not show up for that meeting either. And after Arlene's kids, Jamie and Natalie, arrived home from school to find nobody home, the warning bells were well and truly sounding. The children went to the nearby home of their friend Mark, whose father, Graham Higgins, took them in. Graham was a family friend of Arlene, and he had a landline number of Arlene's dad, Hector McInnes. 
Graham made several attempts to get hold of Arlene with no luck. And then he called Michelle at around 7.30pm, mystified about what on earth was happening. Phone me to say, have you seen Arlene and that? Because the kids are around here and she's not at the house. And I'd said, no, I was met meet her for my lunch and everything and she wasn't there. At one point, Jamie grabbed a pen and a scrap of paper from the Higgins house and wrote a note. He then walked around the corner to his house and fixed the note to the doorstep. The note read, I was home at 7.30, you not in. I'm over at Mark's, where are you? Marion was working as a driving instructor at the time. On the day she was missing because it was thunderstorms and lightning and I had to cancel my lessons and everything. It was starting to go dark and there was a fierce storm. So it was difficult for anyone to drive around looking for Arlene. As the night wore on, Graham was thinking where the kid would stay if their mum couldn't be found. So there was only one thing for it. Graham called the police. After listening to this episode, you're probably thinking there is only one man who could have taken Arlene away, Nat Fraser. You wouldn't be the only one. Arlene's friends who knew Nat's dark side, they too suspected him. But in the days, weeks and months that followed, as the investigation grew to become Scotland's biggest missing persons case, Nat would carefully curate his own public image as the concerned husband and doting father. Nat walked around Elgin with his chin held high because he was shielded by what seemed the almost perfect alibi. An alibi that proved he could not have been in Smith Street when Arlene disappeared. His alibi was good, but it was so good that police started to become suspicious, fearing that it had been constructed to serve a purpose, to keep Nat out of the frame. Next time on Vanished. She was immediately red flagged as a highly vulnerable missing person. Honest opinion, what do you think was madness? Has he done something? Yeah. No doubt in my mind. So this was all again part of a plan to create a, an impression of being the caring husband. He said, can you ask her if she would like to come to a murder mystery weekend with us? Now I took that as a threat. Thank you for listening to this episode of Vanished, the Arlene Fraser murder. Vanished is a production from the Press and Journal and Impact Podcasts. You can listen to the whole series on all major podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and follow our podcast page so you never miss a new episode. And why not check out Hunting Mr X, a true crime podcast. This podcast was hosted and reported by me, Dale Haslam. It was produced by Marvin McIntyre, and Brendan Duggan. Assistant producer is Megan Avonio.